0: While well, we're going to get started, please turn your Bible uh, tonight to Luke 19. We'll be looking at verses 45 through 48 tonight, which starts a new section in our six-part study of principles on prayer from the life of Jesus and the gospel of Luke. Uh, tonight we're going to begin section 5, principles on prayer from the passion of Jesus. And we're going to do something a little bit different in this section of our study. We're going to examine Seven scenes that take place during Jesus' final week before his death, and we're going to note how central prayer is both to Jesus' teaching in that final week as well as to his living as he walked through some of the most difficult moments of his earthly life. We're going to walk through these moments and discover that prayer is the power that impelled Jesus uh, through the trials and temptations that led him to Calvary. Tonight, our first lesson begins when Jesus walks into the temple, and he teaches us all a p- lesson on uh, the importance of keeping the purity of prayer in our worship. And so that's going to be in Luke 19:45 through 48. But before we go any further tonight, let's just ask the Lord to bless our time feasting on his word together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to you tonight. We thank you that when we come to your word, uh, we find the glory of Christ. We find a treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge. We find encouragement. We find conviction. We find strength for daily living. Father, we just pray that you would teach us and grow us tonight. And I pray, Father, that we would see the final week of Jesus from a different perspective as we go through this study and see how his absolute dependence on you is what kept him faithful, kept him enduring to the end, kept him looking beyond the shame of the cross to the joy that was set before him. And I pray, Father, that we would learn from Christ's life and make prayer a central focus uh, for, uh, for our lives as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our verses that are before us uh, tonight, we're going to see Jesus reveal himself as God's divine priest, as the great and final minister sent from God to be the mediator for his people. Now for those that were living in Jesus' Jewish culture at that time, the connections between what Jesus does here and the priestly office would have been very obvious for them, but for those of us who are kind of far removed from that culture... Um, we can easily miss it. So before we dive into this passage, which is only a couple of verses, I want to remind you briefly of the role of a priest uh, in that Jewish culture. According to Mosaic law, priests uh, were the ones appointed by God to to do three duties. Protect the worship, preach the truth, and perform the sacrifices. These were the three things every priest was commanded by God to do. Protect the worship, preach the truth, perform the sacrifices. So first they were commanded and called to protect the worship. God says to Moses in Numbers 3, 6-10, through 10, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set, them, and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnished of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. Verse ten, and you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. So, do you get the point? Priests were commanded to keep guard to protect the worship of God to keep it sacred, separated, holy, pure. If anything or if anyone that was not supposed to be there entered that area of worship, the priest's job was to drive it out. They had to protect the pure worship of God. The second thing that a priest had to do was to preach the truth. Leviticus 10, 10 through 11, the Lord says to Aaron, the high priest and his sons, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. And in other words, a priest is to make it very clear for the people of God what is right and what is wrong, what's true and what's false. How do they do that? Verse 11, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So priests were called not only to protect the pure worship of God, but they were also called to preach the pure truth of God also. Their ministry was to be one of teaching God's word, of learning it, of loving it, and of leading others in it. They were to preach the truth. And then finally, priests were called to perform the sacrifices. In Deuteronomy 33.10, Moses blesses the Levites before the Lord, saying this, "...they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your laws." They were to preach the truth. And then the end of the verse, "...they shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar." So they were to perform the sacrifices, the substitutionary sacrifices for atonement and coverings of sin. So that was the role of the priest, according to the Old Testament. That was what a priest did. They protected the worship, they preached the truth, and they performed the sacrifices." That is exactly what we're going to see Jesus systematically do in our passage tonight. Uh, He is going to protect the worship. He's going to preach the truth in anticipation of him performing the sacrifice in his own flesh, the final sacrifice for sins that Passover Friday. So what we see in this passage is really Jesus performing the role of the divine priest. And we'll see that first with his purge of impure worship impure worship in verses 45 through 46. Jesus here protects the worship of God. Look at verse 45 immediately after Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem it says in verse 45 and he entered the temple. Now I am sure there were many other places that the Jewish people were anticipating Jesus going to at that moment. I mean the attention of the entire nation was on him. They were declaring him to be king. Imagine it. He had just Enter Jerusalem inaugurated upon the people's praises as their king the anticipation surrounding Jesus at this moment would have been the highest it had ever been in his entire earthly ministry so where would Jesus go first would he storm the gates of Fort Antonio and and break down the Roman legion Would he throw open the doors of Pilate's palace and declare himself as king? Would he throw out the tax collectors and all the Roman supporters out of the gates of Jerusalem? Where would Jesus go with all the attention on him? In what way would Jesus execute his authority as Israel's newly appointed king, at least by the praises of the people? What institutions would the king of Israel attack first? Answer, the temple was where Jesus went. The most sacred place in all Israel. Jesus attacks the temple. This was unfathomable. His first official act as Israel's king is not to attack the pagan, idolatrous, occupying Romans, but rather to attack Israel's heart, their very place of worship. The very heart and soul of the nation. And in one single action, Jesus showed the entire nation that His mission... Was completely different than what the crowds wanted it to be. They wanted Jesus to come and they wanted him to begin a political movement. They wanted him to come and begin attacking the idolatry of the the irreligious pagans. They wanted him to come and tear down the oppressive Roman tax franchise. They wanted him to come and make Israel at the top of the totem pole to make Israel rich and great again. This is what they always wanted. Back in John chapter six verse fifteen, after Jesus miraculously led the five thousand outside, fed the five thousand outside of Bethsaida, it said that the people were about to come and take him by force to make him king. You have to ask, well, why would they want that? Well, because they saw in this Galilean miracle worker. The ultimate liberator. Here is someone who can give us free food, free health care. If we could only make this man king, he can give us every earthly thing we could ever want. And that was always their only obsession. They were fixated. Though they called themselves religious, they were fixated on earthly issues and tried to make Jesus fit into their political and social agendas but Jesus would have none of it. According to Jesus, the biggest issue that needed to be attacked in Israel was not the political, economic, or social injustice. It was The biggest issue for Christ that needed to be attacked was the religious corruption that kept people from having a right relationship with God. The religious hypocrisy that kept people from being born again in the eyes of Christ. The biggest issue that needed to be attacked was impure worship. It always had been. If you remember three years earlier, Jesus began his whole earthly ministry off in John 2, 13 through 17 by cleansing the temple. He came in at the very beginning of his ministry with a whip of cords and drove the money changers out of the temple and overturned their tables saying in John 2, verses 16 through 17, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So that's how Jesus's ministry began. That's how Jesus's ministry ended with purging impure worship. Try as they might, the crowds in Israel could never get Jesus off topic. His focus was always on the spiritual, to their great disappointment. Always on people's relationship with God, on establishing pure worship. You say, well, why was that Jesus' mission? It's because it was his Father's mission. Jesus said in John 4.23, the Father is seeking a political revolution. No. The father is seeking... For Israel to be established for the next 200 years, no. Father is seeking true worshipers who will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And if that takes the destruction of the temple and the destruction of all Israel with it, so be it. Jesus was always about his Father's business. He was always about establishing true worship and so where does jesus go he goes straight into the temple as peter as peter put it in first peter 417 judgment must always begin where at the household of god it was time to establish pure worship you know if jesus was still on this earth it would still be his top priority you would sit there and think you know what if jesus could just come to earth man he'd go to washington dc and he'd straight up straighten out all those crazy people no he wouldn't jesus would go to churches He would go to churches all across America. He wouldn't go to Washington, D.C. and attack the politicians. He'd go to churches and he would attack the religious people. He'd attack the heretics and the hypocrites, the false teachers and the exploiters, and he would call for the pure worship of his father, just like he did back then. We know this because this is exactly what Jesus does in Revelation 2 and 3. He writes to his churches and he calls them to repent. Because as long as things are wrong in the household of God, everything else in society, will be thrown into chaos also. The only solution to the problems of this world is to have the pure gospel preached by a pure church. And so, as followers of Christ, this needs to be our constant focus as well. Not politics, but purity. Purity of truth, purity of life, purity of worship. So, where does Jesus go? He goes straight to the temple. And what does he do? End of verse 45, it says, and he began to drive out those who sold. You see, as Jesus walked into the temple grounds, the first courtyard he would have walked into would have been the court of the Gentiles. That was as far as a non-Jew could ever go towards the presence of God. Further in, there was another court of the women, which was as far as the Jewish women could go in their worship of God. And then beyond that, there was the court of Israel, uh, where all the Jewish men could go. So you have the court of the Gentiles, then a little bit closer, the court of the women, then a little bit closer, you had the court of Israel. Completely unbiblical segregation, by the way. But nevertheless, it existed during Jesus' time. But of course, beyond that, there was the temple proper, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Well, Jesus enters that first court, okay? He enters that court of the Gentiles, and he is angered by what he sees. What he sees is what ancient historians called the Bazaar of Annas, Annas being the high priest at that time, a man that Josephus cynically called the great procurer of money. See, within the court of the Gentiles, which was the only place in the entire temple people of other nations could come and worship God, remember? The only place at that time that they could come. Within that court, the Jewish leadership had set up a business center towards making money. And the lucrative business that they set up there was selling animals for temple sacrifices. What happened was you could bring your own animal to have it sacrificed, but the priests would look at that and they'd often say, oh, I'm sorry, there's a little bit of a blemish on that, but don't worry, we've got our own sheep over here that you can buy, and it would be at ten times the price of what a sheep would normally cost. And so during Passover, when according to historians, about 3,000 animals would be brought into the courtyard every day and 260,000 animals would be sacrificed over the entire week at 10 times the price, that meant highway robbery was going on. This was Black Friday, if you want to consider it, for the Jewish leadership. This is when they raked in the dough. Well, Jesus sees this place, a place that was supposed to be a place of prayer, worship, and learning for the nations, and he comes into the court of the Gentiles, and it is filled to the brim with all the sights and sounds and smells of a stockyard. And so Jesus just unleashes his fury. He was God, and this was his house, as he says, my house in verse 46. And they dared bring in their corruption and perverted purposes through their own selfish ends. He would have none of it. So as Malachi 3.1 prophesied, the Lord suddenly appears in his temple. And Luke says here in verse 45, he began to drive them out. That is literally in the Greek. He began to throw them out. To literally pick them up physically and throw them out of the temple gate, most likely. I have to mention that because you don't see this on television, right? Right? I remember there was this one, I can't remember what it was, but it was some show on about Christ and his life. Um, and and it showed Jesus, and I was like, oh, this is the temple cleansing, and he walks in there. Of course, he's the typical Caucasian hippie Jesus. And he walks in there, and he just looks around, and he's like, you've made my father's house of prayer like a den of thieves. And he cries and walks away. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That is not what Scripture teaches at all. Now this might affront your meek and mild view of Jesus, but this is who Jesus is. He comes in there and he terrifies everyone in that temple. This has got to be one of the most understated events in all of Scripture. Think about it. How many hundreds and even thousands of sellers must have been there on that day? And we are to assume that they all left without a fight during their most profitable week of the year? Are we to assume that they all went out without an argument, without any resistance? Try clearing out a Walmart on Black Friday and see if you won't meet resistance. I'm sure he did. Tell me how successful you are. And yet here we find is that Jesus single-handedly clears the whole place out. The other Gospels tell us that he's flipping tables, flipping people off their stools and hurling them out of the temple. This is magnificent, okay, and I want you to see that. This is like Jesus as Superman, right? (laughs) This is on par with the miracles that you hear of in the Old Testament of Samson. One man against a thousand. I don't know how long it took, but it must have been something to see. Those buyers must have been absolutely terrified by Jesus' physical power because Jesus clears the whole temple out. And Mark eleven sixteen tells us that he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. In other words, they didn't quietly pack up their stuff and, and walk out. They suffered complete financial loss that day because Jesus was performing a complete cleansing No slow, gradual removal of the corruption, but a sudden, powerful, terrifying judgment. And this is what Jesus says as he's executing judgment on the temple. He says this in verse 46, repeatedly, by the way. He was saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have meant it, a den of robbers." Notice the intended purpose for the temple that Jesus keeps repeating the entire time he's driving them out. My house shall be a, a house of prayer. And there he's quoting from Isaiah 56, 6-7 through seven, where Jesus says, These foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, who minister to him, who love the name of the Lord and be his servants, everyone who holds fast my covenant, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all. People. So that was the intended purpose of the temple. You can see this declared all the way back in Solomon's prayer in First Kings chapter 8. The house of God was to be a house of worship and prayer, not just for Israel, but for all nations. Whether you were Jew or gentle, Gentile, that was the pure and simple purpose of God's house above and before anything else. It was to be a place where all people prayed. But that purpose had been lost. In the one place where all people could still come and pray together, it had been replaced and crowded out with vain activity, chaotic corruption. That's why Jesus says, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he's kind of referencing Jeremiah 7, 8 through 15 there. So the temple was to be a haven of prayer, but instead it became a haven for robbers, a place for greedy thieves and false worshipers to gather together and find their support. Why do you think in 70 A.D. the temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed and replaced with the church? It's because of this. It's because the Jews had perverted its purpose and its worship. It had abandoned prayer. And so the Lord judged it and wiped it clean off the map. And it hasn't been rebuilt in 2,000 years. Because if the temple won't be a place of prayer for all people, then perhaps the church will. That's the intended purpose of the church as well, to be a house of prayer, to be a family of believers who strive together in prayer in all circumstances to God because our Lord commands us and our love compels us. This is the purpose of the church before and above everything else. So we have to ask ourselves the question, will this house be a house of prayer for all people? Are we resolved to fulfill God's purpose for this church? When the Son of Man comes, as we saw earlier, will He find faith here? Or will He find that prayer has been replaced, crowded out in the life and schedule of our church and from the life and schedule of its leaders by vain activities and chaotic corruptions? We must pray by God's grace that we that He would make us a people of prayer because Jesus does not mess around with impure worship. And that's what I want you to see tonight. What a graphic picture here. He doesn't mess around with the people that call themselves his and yet do not have faith that is alive enough to pray. He warns them for a time, but if he's not heeded, he deals in sudden terrifying judgment to perform a total cleansing for the sake of his name. That's what we see all over the beginning chapters of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 reveals Jesus, dressed as a priest, He's walking among the lampstands of his churches and every step he takes delivers burning hot judgment and purification. That hasn't changed. Jesus is still walking among his churches. And in Revelation 2-3, through he warns us that every church that does not heed his instructions and establish pure worship will have their lampstand removed. Just as he did at the temple, he will shut the whole business down in a moment. As Revelation 2.5 says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So that's what Jesus does here to the temple. That's what Jesus is still doing to churches all across America, all across the world. It's the purging of impure worship. Finally, very briefly, let's observe together the prescription of pure worship. By the way, I think that's partly of what this pandemic has been about. Purging impure worship. Churches have shut down. A lot of the churches have shut down and have insisted on not opening up. Probably should stay closed. (laughs) Because Christ demands a pure church that puts pure worship as a priority. So the purging of impure worship followed by the prescription of pure worship in verses 47 through 48. What does Jesus establish in the temple once he has control? That's what I want you to ask. What does pure worship look like when the divine priest establishes it? Well, it looks like two activities, two main activities, prayer and preaching, prayer and preaching, two of our three means of grace that we've talked about as a church, if you remember, that we're to be devoted to. Look at verse 47, it says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. What a difference is described here. We've gone from the chaos of a bazaar to the quiet scene of a rabbi sitting and teaching his disciples. You can almost picture the peace that Jesus has reestablished in his house. Instead of people rushing around, buying and selling, people are now milling quietly about praying. And if you heard anything at all in that temple now, it was the divine word of God being taught accurately by the priests of God to his people. So don't miss this. When the Son of God rules over the house of God, there is prayer and there is preaching and it will rain. And that's what we see here. Jesus is the divine priest, has protected the worship. And now as the divine priest, he was preaching the truth. Luke says he was teaching daily in the temple. Teaching what? The next verse in uh, Luke 20, verse 1, tells us that, he was preaching the gospel. So in spite of their corruption, I I think this is wonderful, right? He's about to die on the cross. In spite of their corruption, in spite of their hardness of heart, in spite of their shallowness and their unbelief and their impure worship that they had been engaged in, Jesus spends the last hours before his death teaching to them the gospel, the good news of salvation, of forgiveness and of eternal life through faith and repentance in him. So now that pure worship had been restored, now that prayer and preaching had been reestablished, the Prince of Peace is teaching one last time the things that make for peace. He's offering one last time salvation. What's the response verse 47? The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the temple were seeking to destroy him. And they hated him. Broke up Black Friday, right? His mission of pure worship was directly opposed to their mission of earthly gain. They had no time for prayer. They had no time for careful preaching of the word. There was money to be made. There was control to be maintained. He was a threat to their authority. And so they started seeking continually to destroy him. Verse 48, but they did not find anything that they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. They were captivated by him. They were drawn to his teaching. They gave him full attention because no one had ever spoke like this man. Sadly, however, it was all superficial as the crowd slowly realized that Jesus had no intention on making Israel great again and that he was unwaveringly focused on bringing people through repentant faith to a place of pure worship before God. The crowd slowly drifted away until finally on Friday they were easily able to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Just as Isaiah 53, 3 prophesied, he was despised and rejected by men. And it had to be. Why? Because Jesus was a divine priest, right? He had purified the worship, he was preaching the truth, and now it was time to perform the sacrifice. Perform the sacrifice. But before he did that, he protected the worship and he kept it pure by keeping it grounded and focused on what? Prayer. Prayer. Isn't that astonishing? That's the lesson that we see here. If prayer was so important that Jesus directed the national spotlight that was given to him during the triumphal entry towards restoring prayer's purity and importance in worship, how much more ought prayer be important to us as a church? How much more central should it be to our ministries and to our lives? And so I see from this the prayer, Lord, purify us as your people, and create a pure worship among us, a worship that begins and that ends in prayer. In prayer. And so, to that end, it's a joy to have you out here tonight uh, to do just that, to worship the Lord in prayer.